0: Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We bring you interviews today from both sides of the debates over the need for more protectionist trade policies in the U.S. In short, is free trade the goal? or should we be more aggressive at our use of tariffs? We'll be joined by two guests today with competing thoughts on the subject. In a little while, we'll be talking with Vance Ginn. He's the founder and president of Ginn Economic Consulting and chief economist at the Pelican Institute for Public Policy. First, we're joined by John Hendrickson. He is policy director for Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation. John, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Scott.
0: John we are at a time of high inflation steep inflation wage crunches in many places is there a problem with a trade policy which encourages us to purchase products for the lowest possible price
1: well that that's a great question uh, scott and and certainly one of debate within not just uh, our our politics today but even within the conservative free market movement and I would say that there is and and one thing I want to say that the policy of protectionism or the preference of using tariffs does not necessarily mean we shouldn't engage in trade with other countries and I think we need to come to an understanding first that that really for most of our history the United States was under a system of tariffs tariffs that were used for revenue as well as to protect American industries and, and I would argue that uh, the conservative tradition is actually one of supporting the policy of protection. If we go back to the Federalists and Alexander Hamilton uh, in his report on manufacturers, and then through Henry Clay and his American system, all argued for a system of protective tariffs that would protect American industries from the flooding of at that time would have been cheap European goods. And the Republican Party, when when, when they formed uh, from Lincoln until Herbert Hoover, uh, supported a policy of, of high tariffs versus the more uh, progressive Democrats that tended to be the party of maybe a lower revenue tariff. And uh, when you get to Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt, definitely become more globalist and supporting for more free trade policies. But, but today, I think we can see that, decades of of really what, and I don't like the term, but uh, free trade policies have, I I would say, done more damage than, than, than good to the American economy.
0: All right. On the question of damage, many times pointing to the manufacturing sector in the U.S. and cities that were supported by the manufacturing sector, is manufacturing in the US down our job numbers lower simply due to increased efficiency would that have happened no matter what our trade policies were
1: well certainly uh, there is a factor of of increased efficiency and in technology that has impacted uh, manufacturing so for example the manufacturing of the 1950s is not the same as the manufacturing today but but there is still a place for even high tech manufacturing and we're even seeing a lot of that stuff that has been outsourced. And so, for example, within the first decade of, of our century, of the 21st century, we've lost about 6 million manufacturing jobs and well over 50,000 factories have closed. And these are not just factories that are producing T-shirts or, or cheap consumer goods, but also uh, even when we get to, to high technology stuff as well. And so I think certainly there is, you know, an argument can be made. For example, uh, typewriters, you know, obviously obviously, there's not a, an industry for typewriters because computers and other devices have, have taken that over. And mm-hmm. so there's certainly change that comes. But there is an argument that can be made that, that even within high-tech industries, we have certainly been outsourcing a, a lot of our a lot of our jobs at the expense of, of our workers.
0: John, the COVID pandemic uh, made clear to some that there's a problem with the supply chain clearly, and arguments began that perhaps the U.S. should do more to make sure industries that are vital interest, that are necessities uh, for our citizens stay here in the US, how far do you think the government should go in its policies to protect those industries here in the US?
1: Well, there's no doubt that COVID was an awakening uh, in regard to how dependent we are on on foreign supply chains. Uh, this was especially true in terms of pharmaceuticals and, and a lot of people would be shocked how dependent we are on, on even Countries that are, not, that are not friendly to us like China for pharmaceuticals and then also uh, other just the number of, of even cheap goods coming from China that were interrupted because of the supply chain. The other big issue was semiconductors, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that that, uh, for example, my, my brother was trying to buy a new pickup truck and, and basically uh, for I, I can't I, I bet it was a half a year he was waiting uh, and it's not that they didn't have trucks ready, but they couldn't sell them because there was no semiconductors. And, and so there is uh, a lot of necessities, whether it's pharmaceuticals, even consumer goods, but also uh, high-tech goods like semiconductors and also components that are vital to our national defense that we've become overly dependent on. Now, you ask your question about uh, how, how we should respond to that. And first of all, I think that we should encourage more domestic manufacturing. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should be uh, shelling out massive subsidies, but we should be using tariffs to protect industries and continuing to encourage uh, manufacturing to stay here at home. And I think one successful policy uh, was was, uh, President Trump's enactment of steel tariffs, uh, steel had been an industry that had been suffering for decades as a result of not just uh, steel from China, but from other countries that were flooding our market with cheap steel that, that was often subsidized. And our steel industry could not compete with that. And Trump's tariffs, I, I believe, had a positive impact on steel, which I would argue is a vital, uh, is a vital commodity for any nation, and it's a vital industry. And, and so that's just one example of where I think we need a, a, a tariff policy to protect an industry that's in our national interest. On the
0: topic of, of tariffs and government action, John, what gives you the confidence that the government will be uh, limber enough to react and address issues in the market appropriately, that they pull the right levers at the right time?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, for example... Uh, you know, going back to the steel tariffs, certainly in the past you had previous administrations. Uh, for example, President George W. Bush had had uh, had looked at tariffs and even quotas. But I, I think President Trump and I have to I have to say probably the the best person in his administration was our trade representative ambassador Robert Lighthizer, who understood that. In this case the steel industry was suffering and so the tariff was 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 needed in addition uh president trump was right and and ambassador lighthizer was also right that the tariffs imposed on china was also needed as well because china had been for for a long time been uh not only uh abusing you know, cheating on trade through whether it's currency manipulation or their own internal subsidies, Mm -hmm. flooding our markets, that that was an appropriate, you know, stealing technology and so forth. Those tariffs were an appropriate mechanism to respond. And so everyone criticized President Trump and Ambassador Lighthizer for advocating that. And they said, well, you're causing a trade war. But what they didn't understand was that we were already in a trade war with China. When the
0: government gets involved in economic issues like this, especially considering the past 20 years or so of activity, are you concerned about crony capitalism and the government, our government, stepping in to pick winners and losers among the many industries across the U.S.?
1: Yes, that, that is always a concern. And, and really, that's even a concern under the, the neoliberal free market approach. There's still a lot of crony capitalism that's going on. Whether it's too big to fail or some of these other things that have occurred uh, in our in our recent history, so that's always a factor. I I think, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act was an example of of crony capitalism that that sort of the you know trying to uh, subsidize Green New Deal measures. So mm-hmm. there has to be some level of prudence when it, when looking at this. But you know, one thing that convinced me I me mean, about the policy of of protectionism or using tariffs is just looking back through our history and just seeing how successful it was. And so, you know, I, I really like to look at the Harding and Coolidge era as, as sort of the gold standard, where what you can see is by by that, by the 1920s, we had a tremendous economy. We were producing over half the world's steel. The United States was a manufacturing superpower. We became the arsenal of democracy that won World War II. Uh, we're not that today. And, and the reason is, is we've hollowed out our manufacturing sector where we become so dependent on it. And, and there's always a danger. I mean, there's, you know, one thing, <clears throat> and, and even in state policy, we're always looking at, there's always businesses looking for a handout from the government in terms of crony capitalism. And so we always have to be on guard by that. But I, I think a tariff can be used responsibly and strategically uh, applied to various sectors of the economy to protect our home market.
0: John, free trade advocates often look at it as a win-win situation. Both sides have to agree to a transaction, or it doesn't happen. Should we look at at trade as a more of a zero-sum game? Sh- is there a, a clear winner and a clear loser in these transactions?
1: There is, and and I think uh, I think unfortunately some of 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 my friends with on the libertarian and the free market conservatives that embrace free trade have really, they sort of worship at the altar of the free market. And I tend to look at the market is just like human nature, because it's impacted by sinful humans that are making policies. And so, for example, uh, in 2022, our trade deficit was close to a trillion dollars. In 2021, it was a trillion dollars. And and since uh, 2001, we've run up over $12 trillion in trade deficits. And a lot of, you know, the free market folks will say, well, trade deficits don't matter, but it's actually losing investment from our own economy. And the other thing is, is the United States, you know, for a long time has had pretty much a free economy with low tariffs, and we've been taken advantage of. And it's not just China, but it's also the European Union uh, a lot of people forget that the EU is, it has a lot of protectionist measures and even some of our allied countries have, have taken advantage of us. And that's, you know, I have to give President, former President Trump credit on that because he really, you know, in 2016 especially made that a theme of his campaign was that, you know, the United States was being taken advantage of. So it's not just this equal playing field. And, and so I, I think one time, you know, the consequences of this from a conservative perspective is we have to ask ourselves a question is, you know, what are we to conserve when we look at, uh, especially in the Midwest, when we see uh, towns that have been hollowed out, we see, uh, you know, middle-class that was in decline, the rise of deaths of despair, lower wages as a result of the loss of these manufacturing jobs that raises a concern because these other countries are putting themselves first. Why is it wrong for the United States to put itself first in terms of trade policy and protect our own people instead of uh, benefiting multinational corporations that they don't really care about borders, they just care about their bottom line?
0: John, one final question for John Hendrickson, Policy Director at Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation. Uh, Whether we like it or not, as uh, our our leaders and Democrats specifically try to usher in the new green economy, there are items that we can't source in the U.S. These rare earth metals are found elsewhere. Are you worried if we we move toward a protectionist trade policy, if we move toward uh, more aggressive use of tariffs, how are you worried about retaliation and how other countries can manipulate us through these rare earth metals and other materials? We might need that we simply don't have.
1: Well, in regard, I'm glad you brought the issue of uh, rare earth minerals up because uh, we are hurting ourselves because uh, there are some, there is a lot of minerals that we could actually be mining for here within the United States uh, in places like Minnesota and some of the western states and other regions that we're just not doing it because, uh, for example, the Biden administration has put Uh, extensive regulations and permitting requirements on. So, so United States could actually be becoming more self-sufficient in this area if we, if we allowed responsible mining to take place. And there's been a lot of people that have written on this that the United States has a lot of these precious minerals. It's just that the, uh, a lot of government, uh, whether it be at the state or federal level through the permitting process will not allow that to happen now the threat of retaliation is always a factor because certainly that's what china did when when the trump administration put the tariffs on on china they Mm -hmm. retaliated especially against agricultural goods but i have to say even in iowa farmers supported what what the president what president trump was doing because they understood what was at stake And, and so i think the united states uh You know, we're not going to become self sufficient overnight, but we need to do more to bring back manufacturing to become more self sufficient. And just I'll just share one more story quickly. You know, this is what what Hamilton and Washington learned uh, during the American Revolution. They did not want to become dependent again upon uh, a foreign power like France as they were during the Revolutionary War. And so they did not want to see the United States become dependent on, especially, a hostile power like China uh, for national necessities. So there's a lot of things going on here, but, you know, with mining, I, there's a lot of opportunities for mining within the United States that we need to take advantage of.
0: John Hendrickson is policy director at Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation. John, thank you so much for joining us here today on Future of Freedom.
1: Thank you, Scott, and thank you for allowing me to talk about this important issue.
0: And for an opposing perspective, we turn to Vance Ginn. He is founder and president of Ginn Economic Consulting, chief economist at the Pelican Institute for Public Policy, a senior fellow at Young Americans for Liberty. You can find him on Twitter at Vance Ginn, his website VanceGinn.com. Vance, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Scott, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Talking today And asking and answering the question, uh, is a more protectionist policy needed when it comes to American trade? Vance, when it comes to trade and free trade, the concept of free trade, is there any reason to think of free trade differently in 2023 than we might have in 1963 or might have in 1923? Are there fundamental differences between now and then?
2: Scott, the way that I look at it is free trade, we use it each and every day. um, And free trade is really about having free people, allowing them to satisfy their desires, given the scarce resources that are around us. And whenever you think about it, I like to think about it in a way of two individuals trading with one another, um, where it allows for us to do what we do best, uh, being more productive, comparative advantage is what we like to call it in economics, um, to where I'm gonna do what I do best, and you do what you do best, and we can exchange the fruits of our labor that way and that's been the same no matter if it's now in 2023, 1960, 1860, um, even going further back and even in today's day I think it's even easier to exchange given the the um, globalization that's happened the international trade, but also just online, the technology that's out there. There's so many other ways. And so what I really try to break things down and trade being one of them, if it's good enough for two people to be able to trade and be benefiting from that trade where there's a mutual benefit that happens, then why not from other countries? Why not across state lines, things of that nature? And oftentimes what we get into is this debate about whether or not we should be trading with other countries, whether it be China or Mexico trading with the United States. But what I like to say is that it's really Americans trading with the Chinese, Mm. Americans trading with Mexicans and so forth. Um, And so it's really broken down to an individual. Make it personal. A human story about human flourishing is really what trade's been all about throughout human history. And so if we pull ourselves back from that and become more protectionist overall, we're really um, reducing the amount of flourishing, the amount of prosperity that we're able to have, because we're not gonna have that those exchanges and learning and gaining more knowledge from each other in the process. Now, with all of that said, there are national security concerns that need to be taken into account when you think about China, think about Russia, um, other, other countries that are out there. But I don't think that necessarily trade is the way to do that through tariffs and other protectionist measures. That's done more from a national security sort of angle, uh, maybe a department of defense. And so that's something else that needs to be looked at here. But ultimately at the end of the day, international trade, just trade in general between people is a good thing. And we've learned that throughout um, economics. And we've learned that throughout human history.
0: People advocating for more protectionist policies or tariffs often point to our large trade deficit, uh, which has even ballooned higher in, in recent years and has been a fact for quite a long time. The difference is is quite stark. People, one side will say it's a huge problem and one side will say it's just not not a problem at all. We shouldn't look at it as a problem. So. These, these deficits, these trade deficits that we run each year between imports and exports, is it a problem that needs to be addressed?
2: Short answer, no. Uh, I think this, this is a common... Um Kind of, kind of myth that's out there is that the trade deficit is a problem. Um, if and you really got to look at the details of this, Scott, is where the trade deficit, we have two types of accounts um, through NIPA, the national income um, sort of <clears throat> accounting that they like to use by the federal government. And, and this is all based on a Keynesian sort of equation where GDP, um, gross domestic product, is equal to consumption plus investment plus government spending plus net exports. So you have exports minus imports. And this is the calculation that's used as an accounting identity for GDP to try to measure what the economic production is in an economy. Um, And I think when you look at it from that perspective, then it looks like the imports— that last term net exports, if it's negative, then you're importing more than you're exporting. And so it can seem like it's a drain on economic growth, right? Because it would be negative. And so that would mean less real GDP that you would have when you'd have a larger trade deficit. And there's been a lot of focus on that. But just like in my view, Keynesianism has been debunked for many years. Um, so should this idea of a trade deficit hurting the overall economy. Um, really what you do when you look at the net, the, the trade deficit, you think about a current account which is the flow of goods and services, and you look at the capital account, which is the flow of capital. If The, the capital account is usually what gets the most attention on well, the news headlines and the discussions and politics and everything else, because that is where you have the flow of goods and services come in, where we're importing more than we're exporting. We often don't hear about the other side of that though, which means that the capital account, we have a surplus. There is more capital coming into the United States um, than capital that's flowing out, and that's in the form of, you know, buying treasury securities, uh, buying um, um, stocks, bonds, corporate bonds, equities, some some a- other assets within the United States from other countries, which some could consider to be a, a, be a problem. But you've got to make sure that you're looking at both sides of this equation for a capital account and a current account. And so what I think is important about the, the, the flow of funds with trade is really the volume of trade, the total amount of trade, because that is indicating to me whether or not people are satisfying their desires given their scarce resources throughout an economy. Because if they're not, if they're, if they're not benefiting, then they wouldn't be making those exchanges across borders. And so what it also indicates to me, you know, Scott, is that there's a lot of things that we need to be doing here in America um, to lower the cost of production. Why are a lot of people purchasing goods and you know, goods from China? Well, because it's cheaper, mm-hmm. right? They're more productive, have comparative advantage. Those are the types of things that we need to be looking at.
0: Is free trade and open markets to blame for the demise of the manufacturing sector in the US? Is it possible to have a free trade arrangement in which uh, the buyer and the seller are happy, but it harms the community that produces those goods?
2: There's a lot of talk about this one as well, Scott, so it's a great question. And I think that it is over, um, there's too much emphasis that's put on trade as being the factor that we're somehow um, losing jobs. I'm using air quotes right now, losing jobs to China, losing jobs to Mexico. Um, What you need to look at, and the research has been pretty clear on this, is that the jobs being lost in the manufacturing sector within kind of the rust belt weren't necessarily from China or Mexico. Sure, some of those jobs did move to those places, but it was really about increases in technology, new innovations that have come up, which allows us to be more productive, getting more output in the process. But there are some trade-offs that do happen uh, in the marketplace where certain jobs will not exist anymore. And then you'll see that the mix of jobs will change. And I think that's an important point here as well, Scott, is that there's not a stealing or a loss of jobs, it's a change in the mix of jobs. And the mix of jobs being changed in the manufacturing sector within the Rust Belt meant that a lot of the folks needed to go to somewhere else or you know, um, get a different job in the process. And there are transactions costs, not saying that there's no cost to that at all, um, but that there are other opportunities that happen. And, and the other thing is, it's not just technology, but I would also argue in the Rust Belt, you had high regulations, high spending, high taxes that made it more costly to do business in those places. And so they started to choose elsewhere. For example, a lot of the auto sector for, um, has been moving to places in the South, like mm-hmm. in Texas, where I live, from the North. So they're not just moving to other countries. They're moving to places where it's cheaper to do business, where there's you know, not a personal income tax, like in Texas, for example. And so I think it's, again, one of the things we've got to make sure we're looking at internally ourselves before we start pointing the finger at other
0: places. Talking to Vance Ginn, founder of, and uh, president of Ginn Academic Consulting, chief economist at the Pelican Institute for Public Policy, senior fellow at Young Americans for Liberty on the issue of free trade and, and protectionism. Vance, did, did COVID and the, the following months and even years expose a need to bring back production to the U.S., a national need to bring back some of this production to the U.S. by some means because of the supply chain issues we we experienced, and in some cases some very important things like medicine and, and things for children. Do we need to have a policy in place that encourages production back to the U.S.?
2: Yes, and... Uh- The policies that should be in place are lowering the cost of doing business. Again, is you're making sure that we're as competitive as possible. Part of that was through the Trump tax cuts, uh, which I worked in the Trump administration as the Associate Director for Economic Policy, just the chief economist of the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump White House from June twenty nineteen to May of twenty twenty. So I was there after the Trump tax cuts had already been passed. But we had really dug into the benefits of what happened during the Trump tax cuts, where you lowered the corporate income tax rate from 35 percent, the highest in the developed world, down to 21 percent, which is about average in the developed world. There was also a lot of money that was repatriated from other countries back into the United States, capital coming back to the United States again, just a lot of benefits that started to happen. And there was there were more companies that were moving back to the United States or deciding not to leave. So it indicates to you, right, that the incentives matter and that businesses will stay if there's the right cost structure in place. And so I think what we saw during COVID and the pandemic is that we are dependent on other countries for some of the products that go into our medicine, the products that go into other things that we may, you know, the, uh, the PPE, um, the, the products that we need in order to make sure that we're safe. And some of those things may need to be looked at. Um, but I, what I would be careful about is to becoming protectionist and thinking that we're not going to use any of those resources from other countries because then that will create shortages. Um, and that would create a situation where people are worse off in the process. Would you, would you want to pay a little bit higher price, but have the product or not have the product at all if we're not going to import some of that. And we've seen some of that, you know, Scott, with the baby formula shortage Mm -hmm. that's happened over the last year or so. I have a 10 month old. We were dealing with that that same issue over the last year. And and some of that was also not only from the FDA, but from a closure of a plant. Um, And then we got some of that material. We said, look, let's open up so we can get imports of baby formula. The prices came down, there was more on the shelf. And and I think that's what ultimately what consumers want is that you want to be able to get the products that you desire on demand is what we've been (laughs) used to for so long in the United States. And so again, while there were lessons learned during the pandemic, uh, and maybe there needs to be a look at what we're providing, what are supplies here in the United States when we have some sort of emergency. We can't just have a policy driven by emergencies, but what's going to be best during, you know, kind of all situations, which to me is through free markets, which means free people and free trade. I think that's going to be the best situation.
0: Vance, there is a history um, among some conservatives and Republican presidents uh, for tariffs and some protectionist policies, Harding, Coolidge reagan uh most recently president trump were they all wrong
2: i think they are wrong uh i do think that that raises the cost the tariff is nothing more than a tax it's a tax on the american people whenever you want to purchase something that just happens to be across in an, an international border why should we be raising the cost on those uh, on, on those people one thing i would go back you know alexander um hamilton was a he was very much in favor of tariffs, and we used tariffs a lot during the start of our our great country here in the United States. And that may have been useful at the time because there was not a lot of other ways to tax. There wasn't an income tax that didn't happen until 1913 after mm-hmm. the Sixteenth Amendment was passed. Um, there wasn't there weren't sales taxes that were in place. It was really one of the only ways to tax. <laughs> and so what I think what we've done though is we've learned over time through economics through history of what are good taxes that are least burdensome to people and i use good again in quotes because every tax takes from some to give to others in some sense it's theft (laughs) but at least in, in in this situation when you have a sales tax you're deciding what you should buy or not and so i think throughout human history you've seen these situations where some presidents have moved more towards tariffs but i think it's more out of um a populism sort of issue or out of Um, going after a certain country or something along those lines compared to initially when they were created under Hamilton of just funding government. That's what taxes should be about. It's funding limited government that are within the constitutional roles that are laid out pretty clearly within the constitution, not by trying to deal with national security issues or, or try to tax things that People shouldn't like it shouldn't it shouldn't be used to um, design right things. Uh, That's best done by the marketplace through spontaneous order. And if you look at Harding and Coolidge, who Coolidge is one of my favorite presidents, Mm -hmm. um, he also cut taxes substantially. He cut government spending. He was pulling government out of the way of people's lives. In order and then you had some tariffs but those were very small and minor compared to the major changes of removing or uh, cutting government in the process and so if that was the trade-off i had to give i would cut government more (laughs) and make sure that the tariffs were as limited as possible Um, but at the end of the day scott i'm in favor of, of sales taxes i think that that is what works best if you look at across the states of which ones prosper more than others. Um, and and ultimately, it goes back to government spending. This is something I harp on a lot. We need spending limits. We need responsible budgets. And if you can keep spending low, then you don't need as much to tax, whether it be a tariff, income tax, sales taxes, or any other any other types of tax. Um, that's really where the focus should be.
0: Vance, currency manipulation. Uh, it was happening for some time with Japan some decades ago, and certainly now with China. When, when countries are Manipulating their own currency to affect the markets, is free trade still effective? Is free, tra- free trade uh, still the best path?
2: It is the best path because free trade allows for the exchange exchange rates to fluctuate. Um, and deal with the market situation that's in place. So in China, for example, they'll peg at a certain amount to the dollar. It's been fluctuating now in the last couple of years, um, but they're, they do manipulate their currency much more than we do, right? Um, and, and so what that allows to happen is for the market to go back to some sort of equilibrium to allow for the dollar to be what's gonna be best for American people over time. Um, because what's happening is that the dollar tends to appreciate versus the Chinese uh, yuan. And when that happens, that makes it more—it uh, it makes it cheaper for us to be able to buy from China. Now, some may not like that, again, because the trade deficit may go up, mm-hmm. um, things of that nature. But it also means that more capital flow is going to come back into the United States, which, you know, Scott, something that's often overlooked here is why do we have a capital inflow? Because if you have a capital inflow of funds, it's going to mean you're going to have a trade deficit one of the issues here is that we run massive budget deficits by the federal government. When you run massive budget deficits, you've got to issue treasury securities. And those have either got to be purchased by the private sector here in the United States, which is gonna crowd out the economy more, or it can be purchased by other countries. And so a lot of that flow of funds is just to pay for our national debt. And and then that leaves more yuan here in the United States. We can't use, we can't exchange things with yuan here. So we send that money back through the form of imports back to the United States. So there's this circular flow that tends to happen. And so... In order to not manipulate the economy and one of the things is is that the Federal Reserve manipulates the um, the, the currency by changing interest rates day to day and and, and things, you know just you recently they're raising interest rates by quite a bit mm-hmm. that's the way that they manipulate the currency and so if you allow for flexible exchange rates and free trade, you get more of an equilibrium over time that allows people to prosper most um, the best ways that they can. And so I think it's another way that it's essential for us to have free trade is to overcome the manipulation and currency manipulation that can happen in an economy.
0: One final question for Vanskin on this topic. Vance, over the past uh, six years or so, certainly during the Trump administration, we heard not free trade and not protectionists, but this idea of fair trade. Would it be a a good, would it be advantageous for us to look for ways to change the markets manipulate the markets in some small ways for our advantage
2: no (laughs) Um, you know i think a lot of this gets back into social engineering and to me that's not a role for government government is meant to be limited to preserve life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and if they do that there's not the other manipulation that's going on to try to socially engineer society um you, you, you do that through morals, you do that through uh, the church, you do that through people and communities and civil society. Um, you try to influence, not, not by government doing that, but that, that's the way that the culture or civil society is set up. So we're influencing each other every day. Government is there to do things that the private sector can't do or doesn't do well. And one of the things that if they come in and try to change things, there's always going to be unintended consequences, whether it be trade or something else, there are unintended consequences, whether it's seen or unseen. What Bastiat talked about with the unseen costs of the opportunity cost that will be out there. And, and again, with fair trade, um, fairness is in the eyes of the beholder, like beauty, right? Um, there's nothing that can necessarily say that it's fair. For example, if we cut off trade with China, prices Go up tremendously. Is that fair for lower income people who buy a lot of those products? And is it fair for those people who buy those products at usually lower income or um, uh, lower cost stores like Walmart, who employ a lot of people who have lower skills who are now going to lose their jobs? Is that fair? I, I don't think so. There's a ripple effect that happens um, by some of these small changes that have happened. And I, I think it's, it's costly for America. To go back against the grain of having free trade, open trade, and globalization that's happened over time, maybe we might find ways to deal more with our friendly trading, friendlier trading partners. I think that would be a good thing. I think that's why one of the reasons why I'm in favor of having, you know, free trade agreements um, to come up with the lowest cost possible. Mm-hmm. Um, something like Trans-Pacific Partnership I think would have been a great um, a step forward to dealing with more of our allies with trade. And it would have put more pressure on China to change their actions because China also trades a lot with those other um, East Asian countries like Taiwan and others that would have been part of this 12 member group. Um, I think that would be a better pass for the future for trade. And to get away from this idea of what is fair because it's different for everyone. And, and really what we want is more prosperity and flourishing um, for, for people. And, and that is through free trade, free
0: people and free markets. Vance Ginn is founder and president of Ginn Academic Consulting, chief economist at the Pelican Institute for Public Policy, senior fellow at Young Americans for Liberty. You can find him at VanceGinn.com, at Vance Ginn on Twitter. Vance, thanks so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Thank you. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. We thank both of our guests on today's program. John Hendrickson, Policy Director for Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation, and Vance Ginn, Founder and President of Ginn Economic Consulting, Chief Economist at the Pelican Institute for Public Policy, and Senior Fellow at Young Americans for Liberty. Find him on Twitter at Vance Ginn. For more episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom presented by America's Talking Network.